Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Today's guest is Chris Jones, head of the upper school deans at Harvard Westlake. In this episode, Chris, or CJ to his colleagues, speaks about how the college admission process changes in a pandemic. For example, how do students choose colleges when they are unable to tour campuses in person and therefore forced to rely more heavily on either geographical stereotypes or hopefully their relationship with a trusted dean like CJ, a relationship, however, further complicated by now also being virtual. And what happens when colleges go, quote, test optional, end quote, causing massive increases in the number of applications at, in particular, the most highly selective schools? What impact might that have on the way those applications are evaluated? And might test optional be actually here to stay? CJ also talks about growing up on the south side of Chicago, and despite losing his father, at age seven, the many inspiring figures who always seem to appear at critical times to guide him, to St. Ignatius Prep, to Williams College, into college admission, and then into college counseling. Reflecting upon the reality that he was the only boy in his Southside neighborhood to attend and graduate from college, CJ has in turn made it his life's work to become that same inspiring guide for others. This is The Supporting Cast. Chris Jones, welcome to The Supporting Cast. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Eli. It's my pleasure. And and most people call you CJ, so yes. I think uh, I can call you CJ maybe during this uh, this interview as well. Absolutely. So first, I want to find out how are you doing? We're in the middle of this pandemic. There's a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel with the vaccine, of course. You have a couple of daughters. You have a, a, a spouse who also works at Harvard Westlake, uh, Janine Jones. How are you all doing personally during this time. Yeah. And the funny thing is, I, I, I think we're so accustomed when someone asks how we're doing, we're accustomed to saying, oh, we're, we're fine. Right. And I found myself so conscious of using that word now and saying, yeah, I'm fine. But fine just means something way different than it's ever meant before. Yeah. I think that stated, I would say that we really are doing fine. We happen to really not just love one another as a family, but we really like one another and like being around each other. That's uh, so I think yeah. that's definitely a positive. And I don't hear that from all corners. You know, there's some folks who are having a hard time being holed up with the same people all the time. Uh, but that part of it, I, I honestly don't don't mind with the particular set of folks that I've got around me. So that part, I think, is going really well. You do get a little bit stir crazy. I think the one advantage that we have, it's not school related, but club related for volleyball. Avery still has some things that she's able to do. So it gets her out of the house a couple of times a week. I'm yeah. usually the one who takes her. So that gets me out of the house at least a couple of times a week. Uh, and it's not that I'm interacting with people while she's in her practice or anything like that, but it's just being out. It's being out of the house. It's being able to see the sun a little bit, go on a drive, just do something that breaks up the monotony. So I think that part has been good. I, I, I've been doing a lot of meditating. 
Uh, uh-huh. Lots of meditation. So both the classic variety, meaning, you know, seated on a meditation cushion uh, yeah. and or, you know, playing a Tibetan singing bowl. And and then there are the more life integrated types of meditating, like cooking, for example, for me is a very meditative exercise. I just I love to cook. Yeah. Uh, so I, I've definitely enjoyed doing that and picking up picking up some new things to try. So right now, because it's a little bit chillier outside, yeah. uh, I've been trying to get into making some good homemade soups. So mm. uh, it must, the ones that I'm making must be pretty good because both Janine and Avery keep asking me to make them every week. <laughs> so that yeah. must be pretty good. Uh, but cooking for me is a really meditative exercise. And then just reading more. Um, it, it, yeah. I've had a lot more time to do that. So some really good books over the last year that I've read. So getting to sort of what this means for you, the work you do at Harvard Westlake. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Obviously, the pandemic has changed everything about our lives pretty much, but right. it's really changed college admission. And you mm. are the head of the upper school deans at Harvard Westlake. And uh, so I, I'd love to talk a little bit about what this has meant first from the student perspective. What does it mean right. for a student going through this process and thinking about the schools to which mm-hmm. they're going to apply? And then later we'll get to kind of what it means for a college admission officer kind of sitting there at some school kind of looking at applications. But let's start first with with students. How has it changed for the students in your care? Yeah, that's a, that's such a good question. I think from the student side, I, I, it's hard to imagine what it's like being in their shoes, right? Like there's so many things that are going on that are causing their own stresses. And on top of that, they're trying to manage this college going and college application, college research process in ways that they've never seen anybody do for several, several decades at least. So virtual college tours uh, and all the information that kids can research online, that stuff is fine. Uh, Yet there really is no way to replace the benefits of being able to see a place for themselves and envision themselves on campus. So sure, you know, there was a time where very few students got to visit college campuses before they actually went to those places. But the pendulum has swung so far in the in the other direction that now it's made a return to those earlier days much more difficult. Yeah. As a result, I think students have to rely a lot more on the human resources they have. So like their deans or their family or their friends, people who know them or have gotten to know them really well. Hmm. And so say a student comes and says, OK, CJ, I am interested in a medium sized college in or around an urban area. I can come up and they can come up with a list of five to 10 colleges, right? And all of them. And I, I mean, if I were to throw out some of the places that fit into that, into that space, it's Penn, Northwestern, Vanderbilt, Wash U, Carnegie Mellon, Tufts, Johns Hopkins, Case Western. Like I could keep going down the line yeah. with these types of schools. On paper, they would all fit the bill of what that student wants. But we know that there's so much nuance between those schools and each of them has their own ethos. So without the kids being able to see that for themselves, they really have to rely on the people that know them and that have some familiarity yeah. with these institutions to be able to give them an idea of, uh, of which one of those might wind up being the best fit for them. And I do think that part of it uh, is pretty hard. Yeah, can I actually pause you there for a second? Is, Absolutely. It seems like it puts more reliance on the relationship with their college counselor. So yes. if, if they can't get to know the school or, or walk on the campus, they're relying a lot on your knowledge of them, mm-hmm. right? In, in preparing some recommendations, but there's also a greater challenge in that your relationship with them is now virtual, right? Yeah. And you know, you're not able to see them walk down the hall and sit in the couch in your office and right. talk about what's going on. So is that an additional challenge of you being able to connect with them personally the way you did when everything was in person? 
Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Um, there, there's definitely no doubt, no doubt about that. I think um, the one thing that's been able to get us through it a little bit, yeah. and even though no one envisioned this at the time that Harvard-Westlake decided to go to a dean's model as opposed to having great local deans and college counselors, they spliced them together. It's probably been, I don't know, 15 to 18 years ago now. But yeah. from the moment they did that, it primed us to be able to deal with a situation like this better than probably most schools can do because mm -hmm. we do start that relationship when the kids come in in their sophomore year. Right. Um, right. So at least we can say with our juniors, we had a year, pretty much a year, not the entire school year, but most of the year we had to truly be able to get to know our sophomores who are now our current juniors. Yeah. Yes, there's some wrenches in the relationship for sure as a result of not having the benefit of seeing them in person over the last several months. But I do feel comforted somewhat knowing that we did have a relationship yeah. already established. That other part, I think, for the students, in addition to the visiting part, is just the, you know, academically, what does all of this mean? Right. Like there there's data that we as deans have and keep. Uh, one of the tools that I use a lot of times uh, in counseling families is this spreadsheet that shows three years worth of Harvard-Westlake to college data, like student to college data. So it's all the schools that our kids have applied to over that three-year period. Obviously, we hide the names, but you get to see GPAs, yep. you get to yep. see all the stuff that's there, and then you get to see what happens to that student in the college process. So if yeah. a student throws out a school, I can pull it up on that spreadsheet. We can get a feel for where that student would look in this pool of three years worth of data. While that data still means something, Mm -hmm. We don't know exactly what it truly means anymore. It's not it, it, it was never 100 percent predictive. But now say it was 70 percent predictive. Now yeah. it could be 40 percent predictive. We, we just we don't know. Is that because the diminishment of the SAT? And ACT scores, or is it's, it more complex than that? It's a little bit more complex. That's one of the factors that's in there uh, yeah. is uh, the test optional movement and what that's meant. Right, which I um, want to get into. Yeah, you have so many for for good reasons. You have so many kids who are applying to tons and tons of colleges right now. So I think that's having some impact. For example, and I haven't run the numbers to know for sure that this is what it is, but it just kind of feels like what I'm about to say. Harvard Westlake seniors, on average, somewhere between eight and twelve applications is the norm. Yep. This year, it's felt a bit heavier than that. And I would probably guess we're in the 10 to 15 range per student. Mm -hmm. And again, that's not a huge increase. But when you multiply that out among yeah. all the high schools across the country, across the world, you can imagine what's happening at all these colleges now. And without the benefit of those well, kids being true. able to... Yeah, in early admission, right? As is the most highly selected colleges had huge increases in applications. Absolutely, right? absolutely. Yeah. So when you think about, and so let's actually jump into that. So that gets into the test optional piece. Kids yep. from everywhere, it doesn't matter what their testing was like. Either they couldn't test or they were able to test and weren't particularly pleased with their testing. If they're coming from a school and they've got great grades and they're taking you know, great courses, they're doing really well, but maybe in the past, whatever their test scores were, were things that wouldn't have made them as competitive at a particular institution. That kid can apply to that school now yeah. and know yeah. that they've got just as equal a shot as everybody else. So I think that's one of the things, as we were talking earlier about kids not being able to get out and visit colleges, and not being able to discern some of that nuance between different schools instead of saying, okay, I'm interested in, let's go back to the example, a medium-sized college in or around a city, instead of saying, well, these are 25 schools that fit that, I'm going to apply to all 25. That kid used to be able to say, wow, out of that 25, these five or six really feel like me. And so they could tailor their yeah. list now without that benefit. They're just applying across the board to all the schools that fit a particular category for them. And then that ratchets up the anxiety. And what yeah. we've also seen, too, is that the schools that are really seeing the influx of apps are the ones on the coasts. 
uh, versus huh. uh, the ones that are steady, maybe a little bit up or even in decline, tend to be in the Midwest and somewhat in the South. And so our, our and belief what's explaining, on that, Yeah, what's explaining that? The belief is that you're talking about applications that are coming from more densely populated areas. Mm. Those more densely populated areas politically might lean a certain way and believe that the Midwest or the South isn't the place for me. You know, oh, and again, we haven't heard that from a number of kids, but there have been enough over the years who've said things like, oh, I'm coming from California. I know that I want to go east. They will fly over the Midwest to get to yeah. the East Coast. If they stop in the Midwest, they'll stop in Chicago. If they're going to stop in Chicago, then maybe they'll go to St. Louis or they'll go you know, to Columbus. They'll do some different things around there to make it a more, a more robust trip. Yeah. Without stopping in Chicago right now, kids are still applying to the places in Chicago, but those places around that that they would have naturally been able to see on a bigger trip, they're not seeing those places and they're they're having beliefs about what it must be there politically and they're just not even applying. That's interesting. Um, again, that, so that that's gets a into, theory that's out there. And when they're not able to see it in person and sort right. of see kids that might look like them or know yeah. that even at a conservative university, there might be a young Democrats club or at a very liberal, right. leaning, you know, at UC Berkeley, there might be a young Republicans club or whatever it right. is uh, right. for them not to go there and see it. The stereotypes might yeah. override anything else. It does. And I think when kids are able to go and visit those schools, one of the things that they come back and say is, wow, not quite what I would have imagined, but I think I like the idea of having some balance to the political discussion because it creates yeah. a much richer environment in that sense. But again, right. if they're not going there and seeing it for themselves and feeling it, they've got these preconceived notions that I think are hard to get around. Right, right. And so for Harvard Westlake students, are they choosing to take the SAT and ACT for the most part? Are they choosing to take it? And if they aren't happy with their scores, not submitting them, how is it on an individual mm. level? What are the types of choices kids are making? Yeah, we're, we're seeing a little bit of everything. I think okay. um, kids who are able to test, anybody who's able to test for the most part is testing. Yeah. There have been so, and I get the frustration with this, there's been so many cancellations of testing, whether it's at our school or other schools where kids may have been registered that there's some kids who said, you know what, this is so frustrating. I'm tired of this back and forth. I know that I don't need the testing, so I'm just not going to do it. Right. Like I, there's just no reason for me to keep doing this to myself because I keep having a prep, 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 and then it doesn't happen. Prep, prep, prep doesn't happen. I'm tired of that. You have some kids who will say, wow, if I'm not able to take it here, maybe I'll be able to take it in Arizona or Utah or some other place that might be open. And we know that there are some kids, I don't know the percentage on, but we know that there's some kids who've been able to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you do have some other kids who in some way, shape or form were able to test. Uh, like we were able to hold a sitting of the ACT in October, sort of in between when things had opened up a bit and they got right. bad again, we had to close back down. Right. Um, so there are some kids who've been able to get a score or a couple of scores and kind of see what they are. And then they're making that decision. So we've had lots of conversation with kids who've had at least one set of scores and, you know, had to make a determination on whether they send those or not. So now from the institutional perspective, you've worked in college admission and what is it like right now from what you can understand for right. a college admission officer to see not only this huge yeah. increase in applications, so there's more, but mm -hmm. there's actually less in some sense information to go on, at least from a testing standpoint. Right. The SAT is a standardized test and the, mm -hmm. the whole idea, even though it's flawed in many ways, which we could talk about too, it is a standardized assessment across right. all schools, public, private, urban, rural, that college admission officers can use. So how does the absence of that in so many situations change how someone at a college might assess? 
Yeah, that's uh, that's that's one of the magic questions, I think. And interestingly, and I can say this, I can say that I understand where admissions officers are coming from, having been on that side, because I worked in yeah. college admissions for seven years, three different yeah. institutions. At each of those, you didn't want test scores to be as big a factor as they wound up becoming. So when I first mm. broke into college admissions, it was always, and it still is, that the grades and the courses that you take are A plus number one category. And then you had sort of a secondary category. It was test scores, um, extracurriculars, recommendations, like all the other stuff that kind of comes along with it. I got out of college admissions. Uh, my last year was, I think, 2002. And by the time I had left, you would start to see where grades and the courses you take were number one. Test scores that sort of vaulted out of the second category. And mm-hmm. if anything, they created their own second category. And then all that other stuff was third. And you've seen a gradual uptick for the reasons that you just said, where that number one category was still number one, but then test scores had maybe become a 1B, okay? Interesting. And, it, it, and, was, and was U.S. News and World Report and those types of things driving some of that? Yeah, yeah, there's no question. There's definitely no question yeah. about that. And let's enter that discussion too, because that's, yeah, that is, there's a, there's a huge big thing there for sure. Sure, happy to, yeah. So as test scores kind of got up there, it became that crutch for admissions folks. And so as they started to see their application numbers swell, and not having as much time to look holistically at every single application, test scores became one of those things that became at least an early differentiator. Like, okay, this is somebody who could be in line or probably somebody who, unless they're curing cancer, is not somebody that we're going to say yes to. And it didn't mean that those yeah. students weren't automatic no, but there was, there was definitely a cloud that I think was put over those students uh, in the beginning. What colleges are saying now is, wow, now without the benefit of those scores, it's actually allowing us to go back to reading very holistically, which we like. Like we like being able to make arguments for kids that have nothing at all to do with test scores. But the problem to that, which obviously makes sense, is that it's it's delaying all of their processes because it just takes a lot more time with every application where you really are reading every little thing that's in there in order to make sure that you're making the best quality argument that you can. And hearing from some colleges about what the early process was like for them with the test optional piece, again, they they feel very positive about it. And interestingly, in some of the things that we've seen, there are these webinars and stuff, and you have these college folks who come on, and none of them have said something opposite of what I'm going to say right now. Like they have each said, we really feel that the class that we're bringing in is just as strong, if not stronger, than any class that we brought in in the past. And, And especially from an impressive standpoint and what they're able to do from an extracurricular standpoint, we feel like there's a richness to the class that we may not have been able to see before. So the thing that is hardest for them, though, and this gets back to the theme of the discussion that we're having with kids not being able to discern among these institutions, all these colleges, especially on the coast, who've seen their application numbers swell to such a large degree, they truly have no idea from an interest standpoint just how interested these kids are. The being able to go and visit a college campus of all the different kinds of contact you can have with an institution, that by far is the highest quality contact that you can have. And you can imagine why, because a college will look at that and say, our best selling point is our campus, is our human resources that we want you to meet face to face. So they feel that if a kid comes to campus and applies, that's probably going to be a kid that they've got a pretty good shot at yielding. Without that one major indicator in there and seeing these numbers swell and understanding that kids are applying to all these schools for a lot of different reasons, none of the colleges really know what all of this means. Like they probably are all dealing with the same pools right now, right? Instead of being able to say to school A, who are your competitor institutions? And they can say B, C, D, E, and F. Now they have to also include G, H, I, you know, they have to keep going with that yeah. and they just don't yeah. know what it's going to be. So 
again, we don't know exactly what's going to happen with it, but the guess right now, the educated guess right now is that most colleges will admit the kids that they really want to admit and then have a huge pool of waitlist applicants. Yeah, because the yield is is a huge yeah. question mark, right? Huge, huge waitlist pools and probably a lot of confidence that they will go to their waitlist this year because okay. uh, they're going to have to from a yield perspective. And given that some of it has been, again, it's lengthened the process, but it's they say it's been mostly positive from the perspective of taking in a more talented, more interesting class. Is there an aspect of this that you think will stay? You know, Will next year's college admission process also be test optional? What's your hunch on that? Yeah, I, I, I have a good feeling that it will be for most of the schools that are currently test optional. Yeah. Um, some of that will depend on how much the country opens back up. Because when you think about it, junior year is the prime year for a lot of kids for testing. So they've done a lot of their prep, especially when I think about most Harvard Westlake kids, that summer between sophomore and junior year, they do a lot of their prep. So that junior year, it kind of becomes a year of testing. And hopefully you can be done by the time you get to senior year and don't have to worry about it. If you have to take it in senior year, maybe you've got to take it one more time. Without the benefit of being able to take these junior year, potentially, it's thrown that part of the timeline back. So there are already some colleges who have come out and said, regardless of what happens in the country next year, we know that a lot of opportunities are being missed. We're already calling it and saying we're going to be test optional for next year. Interesting. Yeah. If the country opens up and kids are able to, to test, I could see a number of schools peeling back on the test optional piece. But I do know that philosophically, there are a number of schools that are saying right now, we do like what this has allowed us to be able to do. I think we can figure out processes to allow us to do this in a more timely fashion and we want to stick with it. Got it. Interesting. So before we get to you, I know you wanted to talk about the U.S. News and World Report <laughs> and yeah. how that's impacted the work you do. Most people think negatively. Uh, <laughs> some of the college, By the way, even some of the colleges who are listed up at the tippy top of those lists are skeptical of it. So uh, yeah. I'm curious what your perspective is on, on those types of charts. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, I've never been a huge fan of them. It's not the sort of thing that as a counselor, I and probably any of the deans or most of the people that I know in college counseling, I don't think we ever bring those up to a student to say you should be considering these schools because they're listed in U.S. News and World Report. It's more so that we deal with the student or the family who will come and say, I'm interested in X number of schools that are in the top 50 or the top 20 in U.S. News. And so we, we understand sort of what it is. When I was on the college side, it was something that we got as well. Like we never thought that the rankings meant all that much to us, but we understood that for the average consumer, they did mean a lot. Like they were a one-stop shop. And if this yeah. isn't your profession, if this isn't your industry, you just don't know how to discern sometimes. So it's easy to be able to go. It's like when I, um, what is the... Uh, consumer reports? Uh, or, consumer reports, yeah. right. Like anytime I want to <laughs> buy something new, I'm like, hey, let me go check this out because I don't know the difference in all these. It's an easy way right. for me to get some information that makes me feel like I'm informed. That's what U.S. News and World Report is. Again, the colleges don't buy into what it is or what it really means, yet they understand that it's important for the average consumer. And as a result, it's something that they play to to some degree. Yes. Some right. play to it to a high degree. Some play to it to a very little degree. Interestingly, there are some who've chosen not to play the game at all. It's been fascinating to watch those schools from a reputation standpoint over the last two decades and where they where they are now compared to where they once were. Right. And I, I don't mm. want to name any of those schools necessarily, yeah. but I philosophically, they said, we're not going to play the game. We don't believe that they really mean anything. So why are we going to do it? And because of that, they've either it's fallen. Yeah. Wow, right. Like we've seen huh. we've seen what that's done wow. to them in the rankings and we've seen what that's done sort of overall in the whole thing you know they they uh, there's and, and it's sad it's really sad to watch that happen when you admire what they've done philosophically 
So what I also think about is I remember uh, one of the years when I was working in the Williams admissions office, it's usually like Williams, Amherst and Swarthmore on the small colleges list are the top three and they kind of rotate there. There are some schools that wind up in there too, but it always seems to be those three. And there were two or three years in a row where Williams was number two or number three. And there was this big clamoring, not from our office or anything, but there was a big clamoring from alumni base and that sort of thing about, oh, my gosh, what's going on? Why are you know we suddenly not number one anymore? Again, we didn't think it was that big a deal. But when we went and looked at it, we realized that one of the indicators that U.S. News and World Report used, it was um, faculty resources was the, was the heading for it. Mm. And one of one of the indicators under that indicator was percentage of classes below 20 students or low or or below. And the year before that had changed, it was percentage of classes at 25 or below. And Williams happened to have a bunch of classes between 20 and 25 students. (laughs) So suddenly their faculty resources rank went from top five to like mired in the twenties. And again, we didn't, we weren't even aware that that had happened, Yeah. but because of that, suddenly our rank, our rank had dropped, but our rank had dropped a couple slots and it seemed like we couldn't move. And to watch us as an institution respond to that <laughs> told yeah. me a lot like, wow, you know, we, so suddenly a lot of resources were pumped into making sure we had a handful of extra sections so that we had more classes at 20 or wow. fewer students so that wow. we could rise back up. And it, it wasn't one of those things I like to see, but I totally understood why an institution yeah. would make a decision like that. Yeah. So that's a long way of saying that test scores, when you think about easiest ways to drive up the academic piece for you, it is acceptance rate. Another one of those is it, it, it deals with how your test scores look. So from an acceptance rate standpoint, you want to drive up apps so that you can yep. admit fewer kids. Your acceptance yep. rate improves. Everyone says, wow, they're more selective. They must be better. Again, we know right. that that's not necessarily what it means, but... Common calculus, that's kind of what it is. So there's that part of it to deal with. But then also with test scores, colleges make a very calculated decision when they're looking at an applicant. For an applicant that they they're, they like, but they aren't crazy excited about. If it's somebody that they just love and they think, oh my gosh, we have to have the student, whatever the test scores are, they'll be fine with that. Like Even if it's yeah. lower test scores, they can eat those and feel good about it. If it's a kid who's sort of on the cusp though, and they're looking at those test scores, they may say, is this one that we can eat? Like, is this worth eating knowing that this test score is going to have some sort of negative impact on mm. uh, on our overall test right. score that gets reported in places like U.S. News? And so, again, you don't like for that to have to be a part of it, but it is. Interesting. So you, despite our, our students flying over the Midwest and uh, <laughs> only applying to schools on the coast, you grew up in the Midwest, sure as I did. recall. So where did you grow up? CJ? I grew up very proudly on the south side of Chicago. And whereabouts and what did your uh, parents do? So I, I grew up sort of 87th Street between King Drive and Cottage Grove. Parents, that's such a great question. My, my dad actually passed when I was seven. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, and it's, yeah, it wouldn't have come up. Uh, so yeah, my I'm dad sorry. passed when I was seven. He was a semi-professional basketball player in the States and a professional basketball player overseas. Oh. But at the time, gosh, they probably made... I think overseas, maybe he would make like $3,000 in a year. So it wasn't as if that was lucrative at all. Yeah. Uh, he was he was an All-American at the University of Iowa, but did not. He was there for four years, but didn't get his degree. And so he always felt that he had been sort of used up by the Division One basketball oh. machine. And so that was the thing for him. He always thought if 
I were not going to be good enough to go pro, he would never let me play Division One. And so that was always one of those mm. things in the back of my mind. So that was that huh. was my dad. My mom, she's had her career in the medical field. She's sort of been, I guess you would call a desk clerk. Like, I don't know what, exactly what you would say, but sort of receptionist, desk clerk. She did that for several decades and then was moved into sort of an office manager role for the last 10 or 15 years. And that's mm. sort of what she's done. So dad went to college, never got his degree. Mom never went to college. What kind of schooling did you have? Was it public school or private school? Yeah, so I never had the benefit of going to public school, actually. Uh, my mm. elementary school was, it was a Catholic school, parochial school there on the south side. It, I mean, we had, gosh, I'm trying to think how many kids were there. But, it, you know, we had three sections at every grade level, K through eight, and each section probably had 35 kids in it. Um, so, you know, like 90 to 100 kids per grade level called Holy Angels there. So I went to Holy Angels. Coming out of eighth grade, there's a program called Link Unlimited where they would take poorer black kids and sort of hook mm -hmm. us up with a sponsor, like literally link us up uh, with a sponsor who would pay partial up to full tuition for us to attend a parochial high school there in the city. Uh, wow. So that's how I had my high school education paid for. I wound up huh. going to St. Ignatius in Chicago, one of the better, if not the best, parochial school there in the city, yeah. all because of Link, really. And interestingly, Link is what introduced me to Williams. Uh, my hmm. senior year of high school, they organized college trips. So we went and saw a bunch of places locally. And so Notre Dame was sort of my, wow, I want to go to Notre Dame. That's my first choice. Yeah. And then about a month or so after that, the people from Link contacted me and a small cohort of other Link seniors. There were four of us that they took out to visit the small school in the middle of Massachusetts, or actually the corner of nowhere, Massachusetts. They pegged me as a kid that they thought would be a really good fit with them. So those wound up being the only two places I applied uh, huh. and then got into both and had a decision to make. And it was, you know, my heart had always been at Notre Dame. Basketball was really important to me, and I didn't think I'd be able to play at Notre Dame. Maybe I could have, maybe I couldn't. But I thought, like, I'm almost positive I could play at a Division three institution. So the guy who ran Link, we were having a conversation. And it's funny that I'm about to say this because it reminds me of the kind of conversations that we're having with our kids right now. Yeah. Uh, and we were talking about that relationship between Dean and kid and how they really have to rely on our idea of their fit for an institution. But he and I were sitting and having a chat. And I told him, I said, you know, I'm really torn between these two schools. I'm not sure exactly what to do. And he said to me, he's like, look, I know you a lot better than you probably know yourself right now. And I think you go to a place like Notre Dame, you do fine academically, like that wouldn't be a problem. But the classes would be a little bit bigger and you could get lost there. You know, you could choose yeah. not to go and it wouldn't be a big deal and you would do fine. I think at a place like Williams, it's smaller. You'd be noticed. People would know if you weren't around. And I think that's the kind of kick in the tail you hmm. might need. So <laughs> that gives you an idea of what I was like as a high school student. That really helped me to make my ultimate decision. Like, wow, here's this person that knows me really well. Looking at these two places, I don't know a whole lot about what college is and what college means. It yeah. meant a lot to me. And that, that's a huge part of the reason I decided to go to William. Yeah. And what's his name or her name? Thomas Swade. He was a priest there with Link. Got it. Other than him, were there other people in your high school years that influenced yeah. you? Obviously, this was an influence in terms of your college choice, but were there other sure. folks that lit a fire in you either academically or athletically yeah. or when i think about influences in that way there are two lines of reason for me here one one is my my paternal grandmother uh okay. was such a big and major influence for me so again my dad died when i was seven she lived in the same neighborhood that i grew up in and so mm. long story short 
my mom and I and my sister's dad, because my, my mom wound up getting with somebody else. And so my mom and I and my sister's dad and my little sister moved to the suburbs. That wasn't working out for a number of reasons for me. So I wound up moving mm. back into the city and moved in with my grandmother. Interesting. And, and so she has probably been the most influential figure in my life for sure and just really inspiring me to keep going all the time I just the one person i could say not only was i convinced that she loved me unconditionally but her actions yeah. always supported that like always supported that can you give an example <sighs> yes <laughs> this is uh this is sort of a, a funny story some people in the community know this already but it gets to a side of me like i i'm a pretty laid-back person yeah, you are. Almost yeah. all the time. The one place that I never was was on a basketball court, like just this intense, competitive drive. Like that was where I compartmentalize like all those base parts of me, you know? Yeah. And my, my senior year of high school, uh, I remember losing a game. It was one of our high school games. We lost the game. And, and it was right after the game, too. And that's anybody who knows me knows that's not the time to really engage me in any kind of conversation. But I just was I, I was just reeling about how this had gone. I was just seeing them, was just so upset about it. And my poor grandmother came up to me. This is in front of a lot of people, like friends, other people, like high school kids, both teams. Everybody was there. And she just yeah. kind of came up to me. And, uh, and she's like, Chris, you know, calm down. It's OK. It's OK. You know, they, they always say it's. It's not about whether you win or lose. It's uh, it's how you play the game that counts. And in that, it just was the wrong thing to say to me in that moment of who I was at the time. And I looked at my poor little grandmother and I and I said, Nana, we called her Nana. I was like, Nana, if it wasn't about winning and losing, they wouldn't keep the effing score. And I didn't say effing. Like, I actually mm. said the word. And I said this to my poor, sweet grandmother. Oh. And as soon as I said, oh. it, I was like, oh, my gosh, what did I do? She just looked at me and she was like, you're your father's child. And she gave me the biggest hug and she was smiling. She's like, don't even worry about it. It's it's OK. I know what's in your heart. I know you didn't mean that. That's a humorous example. of, But that's how that's who she just yeah. always was. I just whatever whatever she could do for me at any time she did. You know, she didn't have any money to speak of. But when I was in college, I could count on getting some kind of care package from her once every couple yeah. of weeks. You know, and there'd be cans of chicken soup and microwave popcorn and yeah. Uh, it just, yeah, there was just stuff. She just always had a way of showing yeah. and, uh, and doing in a way that I always valued and I will always appreciate. I'd say the second vein of influences in my life, very spiritually speaking, I, I get into that kind of thing and have always felt probably because my dad died when I was so young. I've always felt his presence with me. Like I've always felt like there's there's something much bigger than me that has looked out for me. Yeah. Um, for my whole life when things have gone crazy and off the rails in certain ways. Like I always felt like there was an anchor. There was a beacon there that I could point to. Hmm. And it always seemed like the universe or life was giving me a certain person for a certain time in my life to be there to kind of help me out. So, you know, my grandmother yeah. eternally almost, but yeah. when I think about a father suede, right? Like, so during those high school years, he was he was really influential and in sort of exposing me to life outside of just the South Side of Chicago and making me see things beyond that. Countless coaches over the years have sort of served in that role for me. I think when I was much younger, the basketball coach in my elementary school, who he was also our math teacher, like sixth grade math teacher, but he was all he was a basketball coach there. And he just he was always this really positive male influence, black male influence that I always had. When I wound up in high school, he wound up teaching biology at that same high school. And he was a like sophomore coach there on a basketball team or whatever. So I, I didn't have him again as a coach. 
But he always took this interest in me and in kids who look like me and really trying to help us to make sure we were getting through the experience and navigating it well. Mm. Thinking about winding up at Williams. And again, I didn't understand all these colleges at the time, but I wound up finding out later he went to Amherst, you know, and, and, and so he just... He saw it as his role to kind of give back in that way and use his education the way he did. and was just such a great role model. So, again, he was somebody who was there for a time in my life. Arthur Relaford uh, is his name. And so he was a teacher at Holy Angels who then wound up being a biology teacher for years and years at uh, at St. Ignatius in Chicago. So it's 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 that it's having those people just over and over. There's always been someone I can look at my my father-in-law before he passed away was he was that kind of person. Like he showed me a lot about how to raise a family and to be that man of the house for a family. Like I didn't have that same example really growing right, up right. and didn't know how to do it, didn't know what to do. And he kind of gladly brought me on. And it wasn't a conversation we had, like, can you show me this? It was just uh, an understanding I think he had of where I was coming from. And he took it upon himself to do that for me. And I've always been open uh, to have those sorts of influences. So everywhere I've gone, there's been at least one person yeah, uh, it was just really helped me out. I love the example with your grandmother after the basketball game because <gasps> it's you know when pe- when people really love you, they know that at your worst moment that that's not you, you know, yeah. and that it's sometimes with art with you know, my wife knows that when I'm hungry, you know, I can just be <laughs> irrational and you know exactly. I, when I get frustrated because I can't find a parking space or something, but she right. knows that you just need a snack. This isn't exactly. you, you know what I mean, and so that <laughs> that kind of look and that hug that your grandma gave you, I bet was really uh, in hindsight really something Absolutely. special. Yeah. So you go to Williams, you play Division Three basketball. What was your experience there? And then how did you find your way kind of back into academia hmm. and uh, college admission kind of from Williams? Sure, sure. I um, had, an, had an amazing experience. My The entirety of my Williams career was awesome. And it didn't. it's not that it didn't come with fits and starts because it definitely did. Uh, but it is one of those things where I look back in hindsight and the advice I got from Father Swade and thought he, was, he knew me really well and it was perfect. I think I didn't realize before going that I'm a fairly introverted person. You know, I I thought of myself as extroverted because I used to assume that extroversion and introversion dealt with like being shy or not shy. And even though a shy person is likely to be an introverted, it doesn't mean an introvert is shy because I'm not that. But I think in going there, I really found my tribe. I found my people in that sense. Mm. Extremely, extremely thoughtful, you know, yeah, and, and, and ways that I think frustrate some other people that I know, like Jeanine, she's like, oh my gosh, just give me an answer versus, <laughs> well, let's talk it out. Let's kind of see where this is. Like I was in a community yeah. of people who love to be able to do that. Or yeah. uh, we have winter study. It's the whole month of January where you take some course. It's, a, it's usually a non-academic course. Like I think one year I took something on playing bridge. I think another year I took something on the U.S. Census. The most academic one I took was something about um, Frankenstein, like we were, we were looking at the book Frankenstein and really dissecting it. But it was, you know, you take one class for an entire month. It only meets a couple times a week. But what it did was give you time to mm-hmm. go to the coffee shop or hang out in the dorm with this person, whether it's a good friend of yours or somebody you just want to kind of get to know. You could do that without the pressure of feeling like, oh, I can't let this conversation go to midnight because I got to get up tomorrow morning. You could do that, and people there really enjoyed invested in one another in that kind of way it's we're in this community with all these ultra talented people i love the chance to just get to know them on a very human level and a very personal kind of level and again it's something that is very endemic to a person that goes to school like that and and i would have known that going in but i think in hindsight i look back and say wow like it really actually was a perfect place for me 
the basketball experience was good but frustrating. We had a really good team, but I had I dealt with a lot of injuries. Mm. Uh, every year I had some kind of freak injury, and usually it happened in the preseason. It really impacted my career from mm. that standpoint. But it went out. I went out on a high note. Uh, my senior year, the NESCAC conference decided to allow our teams to go to the NCAA tournament, and that was the first time that our conference had been able to go in 30 years. I think it had been. 62, 63, something like that. 1962 or 63 was the last time they've been able to go. And so they they lifted the band for three years for team sports. And that was my senior year. And it was just, it was the best experience ever. We actually got to go to the tournament. At one point mm-hmm. that year, we were even number one in the country in D3. Wow. Uh, we won our first game, which was a home game. It was the last home game of my career. I had a pretty legendary move there that still kind of lives on and people still talk about, which was cool. <laughs> We fell to UMass Dartmouth at their place. It's a game I'll never forget. I'll never forget the last couple of plays of that game. It's the stuff that you you always remember. Yeah. But that group of us, there were six seniors that year, and we've remained pretty tight over the years. Not that we uh. communicate all the time, but we're we're relatively close. I think my my coach Harry Sheehy, who is now in the Hall of Fame out there in New England, our class was really his class. Like he had other classes that were good, and he had players who were good, and he had teams that. We're decent, maybe a little bit above 500, but our class, when we came in, we were the one that took it to a new level and they've been great ever since. So I think Hmm. part of the reason the six of us are so close is that we look back on that with some pride, like, wow, we really helped establish it to the degree where it is right now. So, you know, basketball, I think was great. Socially, I had a really great time. My senior year, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I think there was a part of me that that had already felt as if education had given me so much and I wanted to be able to share my kind of experience with folks who came from environments like mine. In my neighborhood, there were about 20 boys that all grew up there together. And of the 20, at the time that we were going off like college age, I was the only one of those 20 to go to and graduate from college. And I never felt like I was the sharpest of that group or, um, you know, necessarily the most talented. But going back to what I was saying a little bit before, just always feeling as if life brought the right people into my life at the right time. That's just kind of how it happened. There were people who came into my life and encouraged me to take these opportunities, even if it was an opportunity that I wouldn't have recognized how advantageous it would have been at the time. And I trusted enough in my process and had enough faith in my life as a process at that time that I that I was able to discern what was good advice from what was bad and took it. And that really yeah. led to my being able to make some of the steps that I've been able to make. So, again, long way of saying, I think that there was a part of me that I always wanted to give back uh, yeah. in that same kind of way and expose people to, to the kinds of opportunities I'd had. And I happened to get a call uh, from a guy who worked in the admissions office at Kenyon. My mm. freshman year at Williams, he had just graduated from Williams and was working in the admissions office there. And so and he was sort of a big brother. Again, this is talking about these figures, right? He was a big yeah. brother figure for us. And, uh, and I got to know him. It was like, wow, you know, Kevin Brown is his name. Kevin was this great guy. When he left Williams to go to Skidmore to work in admissions, he invited me and a couple other guys out just, uh, hey, come check this place out. This is where I am now. So every time he moved to a different place, myself and a couple other people would all always go to kind of celebrate moving him in. So he wound up at Kenyon right before my senior year. And I had gone out to visit there. And I thought, wow, here's this beautiful place in the middle of Ohio. So here I was now, fast forward to the end of senior year. He calls me and says, hey, a position opened up in our admissions office. I think you'd be great at this. Do you have interest? And I'm like, yeah, of course I have interest because I had nothing else at the time. Yeah, Had never done anything truly admissions related before that. 
other than host a lot of the recruits who came to campus, Coach would always give me his most prized recruits. And usually those kids wound up coming. So it must have been something I was doing well. <laughs> but anyway, wound up falling into college admissions in that way. And when I was there, I really got a feel for what that exposure meant. I was looking at the group of kids at Kenyon who look like me, guys who were from inner city Cleveland. Some were from Cincinnati. Some were from Columbus. That group was close. And I was their Kevin Brown for them. Like I was a guy that they kind of looked up to. And I was sort of that mentor to help them understand like, hey, I just need you to know, sure, what you look around and see doesn't necessarily look like you, but you belong. And if you didn't belong, we would have admitted you here. And so really reinforcing those messages was something I was really trying to do, because after Kevin left, I don't know that we really had that same voice there at Williams. Luckily, I had a great experience anyway, but I really wanted to be that voice for that kid in these situations. So I'd gone to Kenyon, was there in admissions for two years, uh, and then actually went back to Williams and did admissions for another two years and, and, and felt like I was able to come back to my alma mater and serve them in a way that I couldn't have done when I was a student. Yeah. Took a year to go to grad school down in New York City before then going to American University and was there for a year before Janine and I moved to Ohio. And I, I actually went back to Kenan for two more years in admissions before then moving to the high school side. And even moving to the high school side was more of the same. Like, I really want to make sure, again, that kids that look like me really feel that they own this place too and that they belong. Along the way, I started also to understand that I, I wasn't just there for that student. I was also there for all these other kids, especially considering what I saw around me. I didn't see a lot of black male educators in these, in these predominantly white spaces, these independent schools. When I was at Kenyon, when I was at Williams, I didn't see a lot of that. Meaning that the, the the white kids didn't see it either. And so for them yeah. to now see somebody in that kind of position and go to that person as a mentor and go to that person to seek advice, I started to see the impact that that was having in their lives and the things that they were sharing with me, too. And that created a new level of richness in the profession for me mm-hmm. uh, that wound up feeding my soul, I think, in a really good way, too. So I think over the years, my reason for being in education has morphed and changed a little bit. I think the initial thing has always been there, but I've come to appreciate it on a lot of other levels as well. Well, before we go, I wanted to, uh, there are a few standard questions as part of supporting sure. cash, just sort of get to know you. And uh, they relate to Los Angeles. We are known for our movies, our food, and our climate. Mm. Uh, so first, CJ, what is, uh, you've come out from the Midwest to Los Angeles. This is Hollywood. This is where movies are made. What is Chris Jones's favorite movie? The one that had been in my heart for the longest is a soldier story. It mm. was <sighs> late 80s, probably, movie that came out. One of Denzel Washington's earliest movies. I didn't know him as Denzel Washington at the time. It's about a a, a troop of black soldiers and some trials and tribulations and some things that happen. And there's some twists and turns to it that I just that I loved. And at the time that that was my favorite movie for a long, long time. I think less serious, but in an impactful way, in part because it always makes me think about my relationship with my dad is the movie Armageddon. <laughs> like it was, it just, I, there was just something really powerful about it. And then without yeah. giving anything away, sort of the culminating scene with Bruce Willis and... Um, Liv Tyler, was it? Isn't it no, well, Liv Tyler, but what's, what's it? Ben Affleck. Oh, Ben um, Affleck, yeah, yeah. Yeah, with Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck. There's a culminating father-son kind of scene between them that just touched me to no end. And so I think mm. those are the first two that come to mind. I know that there's some others that I just can't think of right off, but those two definitely come to mind first. I, You know what? I would actually say one that I think is 
has is now in the category for me as Joker. It's hard mm-hmm. for me to say that about a movie that I that's so new on the scene for me, but it yeah. really I thought that and was so especially dark. powerful. And so movie. dark, but yeah, yeah. And just the uh, the level of artistry that Joaquin Phoenix has to have, it's either that or he truly is insane. Because um, it, it's hard. When I look at him, I'm like, you have to be a little bit touched to play that role that well. But I respect it. I really, really respect it. And there's a look that he has in his eyes at certain times where I think, oh, my gosh, I am so convinced that you are out of your mind. Right. Yeah, right. There is there's a darkness to it. I, I like dark. I think there is a, a it's probably a really dark side to me because I think I tend to like dark stuff. But those are probably the three that come to mind the most for me right now. Okay, great. What is your favorite meal in L.A.? Either at a restaurant or and then you are a cook and, and yeah. Janine has mentioned that you are a very good cook. Uh, oh. So <laughs> is it something you make at home? Is it something, a restaurant you guys like? Yeah, I'd say here, and, and interestingly, when we were doing a pros and cons list for for why we would move to L.A. versus stay in Columbus, one of the pros for me is authentic Mexican food. Like I, oh, yeah. I really, yep. really like Mexican food. And me too. it just tastes different out here than it does everywhere else. It took a little bit of changing of the palate for me when I first got out here, but I just, I love it. I really love it. I, I can't say that I have a favorite place. Yeah. I like them all. You know, they all have okay. a slightly different feel and flavor to them. And I really do like them all. So Mexican food in general that I get out here, I love. Yep. Seafood of all varieties I really like. And it's fresher out here than any other place I've lived, save when I was living in Massachusetts. Like we could get some pretty good stuff out there. But the variety of fish that you get out here, I definitely like it a lot more. I've become a huge scallop fan. Didn't grow up really eating them, but have become that. I've also come to appreciate certain vegetables like Brussels sprouts. Now, Mm -hmm. the way that I like them, they're probably not any good for you, but I did not like Brussels sprouts at all. (laughs) You name it. You throw it on there, I like it. But I never liked Brussels sprouts until I got out here. Never really had avocado before I got out here. I know that the avocado that I used to get out east, the few times that I tried it, tended to be pretty brown. Because by the time we got it, that's what it looked like. And that's probably one of the reasons it never rose up the chain for me. But coming out here and when it's just so fresh, oh, yeah, it's another level. Like it really did yep. introduce me to something different. And what's your favorite place in L.A.? Could be a part of town or a yeah, favorite street place, or a Favorite view? place in L.A. I, I'm going to give you the honest answer here though, because I'm trying to come up with something more exotic than what I'm going to say. But anybody who really knows me knows that I'm being completely honest here. My favorite place in L.A., is any gym where my daughter Avery is playing volleyball yeah. like that. It's, it's, it's my favorite place to be right now. It's uh, my wife says that I'm obsessed and I probably am like I've given up coaching basketball coach for years and years and years. And I needed to turn that energy somewhere. And yeah. she's into volleyball in the same ways I was always really into basketball. So I think mm. we connect there too. And it, it gives me a chance to kind of give back to her in ways that I think my dad would have given back to me from a basketball perspective, even though it's volleyball yeah. and I don't know it as well as I know basketball, obviously. Just from a sport culture perspective, I can give her a lot that I think hopefully is helping her out. So just watching her incorporate that stuff into her game, into her approach to what she does on the court and, and watching her play and watching her teams kind of gel and come together that's a real treat for me. So anytime I get a chance to do that, I'm just in seventh heaven. Last question. You are the father of two daughters. Yes. You have, I believe, what, a 15 and a 20 year old, Mm -hmm. I believe. Mm -hmm. I have a daughter who is two. (laughs) Uh, The last question is, what is your best parenting 
advice. And I, you know, a lot of this conversation is interesting is about your father who passed away at seven and sort of the absence of that father and the different people that have come into your life and guided you in really powerful ways. I, I guess with that as a background, how, uh, what's your best advice on raising two daughters, mm. being there for your daughters the way that you missed out on a bit because yeah. of uh, the absence of your dad? Yeah, no, that's great. Um, I mean, the first one of these is obvious and everybody says is you, you just, you have to enjoy every second because it goes so quickly. Like it really does to look up and know that I have a 20 year old who's a junior in college. She's about to turn 21 in June and our youngest will be driving age 16 in July. It just, that doesn't even compute that we've gotten that far. Uh, and the idea that I'm not rushing it, but I really am looking forward to grandparenthood just to have another baby in the family, right? And you can <laughs> rear and you can do those sorts of things. So enjoy, enjoy every second of it. Because uh, once it's gone, it's gone. You know, once they go from not sitting up to sitting up, those days are gone. When Once they go from sitting stationary to crawling, from crawling to walking, from walking to running, from running to driving, from driving to flying across the country to be in college, right? Like all of yeah. those things come with a lot. And each one of them is a step along the way that challenges you. So enjoy every second of it that you can. Appreciate each one of those challenging moments as an opportunity for you to grow personally. I think yeah. that has made parenting, it's kept parenting really fresh for me because your kids present you with something new all the time. And instead of me being a rock in the way that I'm going to say it, instead of me being hard and I can't change, it's a, wow, this presents me with an opportunity to respond differently. Here's a test. How am I going to respond? And sometimes yeah. I respond the same way I would have for the last 20 years. Other times I come up with something completely new. So being open to my own process, I think has been really good. And the other thing, and everybody's a little bit different with this, I would say for me personally, and Janine is probably a little bit different as a parent, but I, we've come to a meeting of the minds, I think for sure. But I would say I'm more extreme with this for me personally. I feel like I am here to guide my children to discover whatever it is that they're truly meant to be. It's not for me to tell them what to do in that sense, because mm -hmm. I do believe that each of us is endowed with a very particular gift that no one else, past, present or future, has done or ever will be able to do to the to the same degree that we can. Like there's something that Eli Goldsmith is able to do that no one else will ever be able to do, has ever been able to do as well as you can do. There's something I can do that's exactly the same. I feel that way about absolutely everyone. And I don't think that education as currently constructed naturally takes us down that route. So yeah. for me as a parent, I've always seen it as my duty to say, okay, yeah, you're learning the, the ABCs and the, you know, all the stuff that comes along with it. That's great. But I need to make sure that you understand there's there's something you're meant to do and meant to be that none of us can tell you what that is. Like there's a relationship between you and the universe that you have got to to have. And I want to nurture that and stand out of the way and allow you to experience whatever that is and then give that to the world. Like if I have done that, I've done my duty. So the fact that you've asked me that, I'm going to share that. Take it and do what you will. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, uh, CJ, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, this, this has fun. been the supporting cast. Mm -hmm.